0: What a privilege, if you weren't here at the conference, uh, you will have noticed that John and Ellie Mumford uh, did a number of sessions there, and we are utterly delighted that John will be sharing with us this morning. So uh, just a little bit of background about them, if you didn't know, John and Ellie Mumford planted the first vineyard church in the UK and Ireland back about 30, 87, so about 30, 31 years ago. Um, And they're really, really young, so they did it in their teens. (laughs) No, so 30 years ago, they planted the first vineyard church in the UK and Ireland, and for 25 years, 25-plus years, were the national directors for the UK and Ireland vineyard movement. The last couple of years, they have handed on the leadership of the movement to John Debbie Wright, who lead Trent Vineyard, but have been more busy than ever flying around the world, encouraging other vineyard movements in different nations. They have a global role. They have a huge international influence. The whole vineyard movement is healthier and thriving because of all that they've blessed. And the legacy they leave behind them is beautiful. And that includes my story and this church's story as well. They are the grandparents of this church. And I'm utterly, utterly thrilled to introduce John this morning to you. And, and, and Ellie as well storming the stage.
1: (laughs) This is me storming the pulpit before John begins, just to say on behalf of my husband and I, that we are utterly thrilled to be here. We've had a fantastic weekend and just coming here is the sort of high point of it. And the last time we came, these pews up at the back, I think these are called pews because it's a proper church, um, they were empty. And look at you all, it's really, really lovely, and we are thrilled to be here. Uh, here we go, storming the, po- re- retaliation.
2: The worship, the worship leader could afford
1: a pair of trousers. Yes, he could, yes, that is true. Yeah, yeah, there was a day.
2: There was a day. But
1: now we, we close our eyes in worship so as not to have to look at his patella knees. <laughs> I'm not caught up in the throne, I'm just trying not to look. Um, <laughs> It is a real delight. And as Jen said, now um, having handed on the the leadership of the movement to the amazing John and Debbie, we now spend our time going around the the vineyard world. And I just have to tell you very quickly, the vineyard is alive and it is happening and it is growing like Topsy all around the world from the furthest, tips of South you know, New Zealand, right up to the wastes of Northern Canada, down to Chile, where we were a couple of weeks ago, to the foothills of the Himalayas. The Lord is alive and well and moving and using the vineyard to spread the gospel and to plant churches. And it's an amazing thing. And I'll tell you one little story. A couple of years ago, so, right, if I talk fast, um, <laughs> for a change. Uh, A couple of years ago, John and I went to Brazil for the release of the Brazil Vineyard and we went up onto the Xingu River, which is a tributary of um, the Amazon, where there are no roads and no electricity and therefore you go everywhere by boat. So we were taken by boat right up river for hours and hours and hours. Tiny, tiny little habitations on stilts up the river. And that's where the churches are being planted. It is extraordinary. And there's a woman there that leads the, the churches and she herself was born on the river. At the age of 14, she went into the city, she knocked on the door of the missionaries and said, do you need a maid? And indeed they did because they were vineyard missionaries and they took her in and they led her to Jesus and she now leads the vineyard movement in that area of Brazil. So they took us up the river in hammocks, day and night, boys and girls together, no change of clothes, nothing. I mean it was bizarre. And then when they they parked the boat or whatever you do to a boat and then the, the chief evangelist put on flippers and a snorkel and took out a spear gun and dived under the water and shot piranha for lunch. Look at us, John and me, look at us. Are we improbable or what? (laughs) I mean, we really were out of our... But the point of my story, we went up through this little settlement, up through the chickens and the cows, and there was a little group of people, perhaps about 20 of them, sitting round a tree, some up the tree, some round the tree, and they were speaking Portuguese, and they said, we're going to worship. And they started to sing, no instruments, nothing. They started to sing, come, now is the time to worship, which we all know and love and which was written by Brian Dixon, three miles from our house in Wimbledon, when he was working as our worship leader 20 years ago. And I thought, Lord, this vineyard thing is phenomenal. This is so wonderful. So those people under the tree on the Jingu River are your brothers and sisters, and the vineyard is a fun thing to be a part of. That's all I have to say.
2: With what little time remains? <laughs> we will look very hurriedly at the book of Revelation. If you could turn, it's the last one. Turn to, if you've got a Bible, turn to the maps at the back and then work forwards, and you'll hit the book of Revelation. If you have a digital device, you may use that, providing you don't attend to your emails. <clears throat> I've entitled this talk, this short talk, <laughs> The Lion, the Throne, and the Lamb. No wardrobe, alas, nor indeed which. But for those of you who are not familiar, let me just give you a little bit of context this book written by the by now elderly follower of Jesus, the apostle John he'd been banished by the Roman authorities to a prison island, a sort of gulag, prison gulag and at a place called Patmos it's a in the remote Greek island in the Aegean and it was written of course in a specific historic situation where this was around about 95, 96 AD and the, at that time the early Christians were under a huge amount of pressure. In Rome the new emperor was a man called Domitian who was frankly a ruthless megalomaniac I mean he made Stalin and Pol Pot look like you know, Sunday school teachers <laughs> and Uh, He was asserting the dominance of Rome, not only his own authority, but his own divinity. He decided that he was a god and was requiring citizens to worship him, which, of course, put Christians in a bind. And they were under tremendous pressure and major threat. They were losing their properties, their houses, their jobs, their freedom. They were being thrown in prison and, in some cases, losing their lives. So, talk about needing courage. They were under huge pressure. So in that situation, what does, what does God do? What does, how does God choose to strengthen and to fortify and to encourage and to build up his people? <laughs> it's astonishing. He gives his servant John a vision He's had enough already. It's, it's too long for him. His attention, his attention span has been overtaxed. <laughs> you need to know that we love James and Jen very dearly. Says he now clearing up his own mess. Uh, They are dear friends of ours, as you probably know, and we admire them hugely. And as I was saying at the conference, we admire your taste and discernment in selecting them as your leaders. (laughs) You've done very well. And they they are doing a fantastic job here, and indeed with the rest of the Vineyard family in the UK and Ireland. And um, we're very, very grateful to them, and we love them dearly. And they're three wonderful daughters. book of revelation I think we were weren't we (laughs) so here in the book of revelation you get imagine yourself pressing your eye up to the keyhole to a door into heaven a sort of peephole into what is going on right at the center of the universe and as you know it's a, a book indeed a chapter this particular chapter we're going to look at full of fantastic imagery and Vivid symbolic pictures. <clears throat> it's a spectacular account of what is really indescribable. Look, chapter four, verse eleven. After this, he, John says, "I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet." said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. At at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne. A throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat on it there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. These are precious stones. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Verse eight, each of these four living creatures had six wings and covered with eyes and day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the throne and and lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They laid their crowns down before the throne. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor. Power. for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being they wouldn't exist if it wasn't your intention and will chapter, next chapter verse 5 then one of the elders said to me don't weep see the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has triumphed he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain Standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes and the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and every language, and every people, and every nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice. They all sang. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that's in them singing to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor <laughs> and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And the creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down. And what else could they do but worship? <laughs> it is phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, you just want to stop right there and say, Okay. Cut to the chase. <clears throat> John sees a vision, and it's a glimpse of heaven. In these two chapters, he records for us, whose per- and its purpose was to help the churches in this first century. So, of course. Um, at one level, this is a vision for the churches in a particular his- historical time who are under pressure. The churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira and Laodicea. And to help them deal with the pressures that life was, uh, 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 they were suffering in their lives. But it's not, you see, the, book, the, the intriguing thing about this book of Revelation, it's not just about perspective on one historical situation. It's a perspective on life and the world. We're having trouble here, aren't we? Thank you. Can you kill... Anything? The only reason they don't give me one of these is I have a <laughs> habit of dropping them. <laughs> And I can't be trusted, and they're rather expensive. <laughs> so. uh, but the point, there was, it was a vision that was to encourage the churches then. The only point I'm trying to make, it is also a vision, through the activity of the Holy Spirit who wrote it in the first place, to bring encouragement and blessing to us in our time. There is, in that sense, a timelessness to it so chapters 4 and 5 are a vision for us here in Cardiff now it's a vision for the churches in Huddersfield and Dublin and Prague and Lusaka it's a vision for the churches in China and Uzbekistan and Iran and the Sudan particularly those churches facing difficulties to help us deal with the pressures. So you say, well, what is the vision? The vision is really of God and of worship. It's a vision of God being worshiped. So first there is the throne. God is on a throne. You probably didn't count it, but in just those four, five verses in the chapter, verses two, three, four, and five, seven times the throne is mentioned. So, just in case you miss it the first time because you're asleep, uh, or the second time because you're you know knackered from the weekend, or a third time, you know whatever. By the by, the, the seventh, you pretty well got it right. There is a throne. And it is a scene of utter, indescribable, awesome majesty. That's what John is conveying. As he peers in, as it were, the keyhole to the very command center, the nerve center, the cosmic headquarters of the entire universe. And right at the center of it, there's not a vacuum, there's not a bunch of admirals running around in a panic, or military dictators, no, no, no. There is a throne upon which sits the King of Kings. It is majestic. Jean Peterson, who wrote the message, said, the throne of God is the central revelation of the Bible. And we often don't, we in the vineyard, we often talk about the kingdom of God, or the reign and rule of God. Well, this is where it comes from. This is where it emanates from. Don't get tripped up, will you, over the you know, book's Books, libraries have been written about the significance of all these exciting-sounding jewels, you know, jasper and carnelian and emeralds and pearls and all that. And, you know, what it, precise meaning of, who knows, and who cares, <laughs> honestly. I mean, the, the, what they do is they speak of magnificence, they speak of, of wealth and splendour, you know, in the ancient world, the more, when you went out in public, the more you were decked in, you know, bling, the better. It just, it was a status, do you see? And this is, this is bling to end all blings, if I put it <laughs> crudely. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? So don't get tied up on what does the meaning of carnelian. Answer the phone, don't <clears throat> that was their alarm to go and have another cup of coffee that's what it was actually (laughs) do you see what John is saying is God is splendid and he's decked out in utter beauty that's his point in a way that you can barely describe God is worthy of our attention you know he'll turn just because of what he is and what he sparkles with he's just he has he just turns our heads so magnificent is he flashes of lightning coming from the throne and then somebody turns up the bass. you know the bass rumble and rumblings of peals of thunder he says then there's light and these bright seven lamps are blazing not just pathetic new long life 60 watt nonsenses no 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 this is the real deal this is deeply eco-insensitive <laughs> and then it's all doubled because you've got mirrors so suddenly the effect is doubled as it comes and hits you do you see The whole point is this is this is beyond words magnificence, and this is the God whom we worship. That's his point. And of course, what he means—I mean, one of the things he's conveying to us is that God is the center point. You know, there's the throne in the middle, and all these people worshiping around it. He's making a profound point that so often we are, in our society, in our culture, we are hardwired to think of life revolving around us. Self-centered, self-promoting, self-indulgent, self-seeking, self-satisfying, self-aggrandizing, self-absorbed, self, 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 self. yes? And along comes John and says, no, 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 let me turn that on its head. Let me kick over your buckets. Let me invite you to recalibrate the way you see life and God and the universe and everything else. It's, it's a God-centered world we live in. That's deeply offensive to many. What do you mean I should bow at a throne of a king? I'm the king. I'm the boss. I'm entitled to whatever I'm entitled to. John says, no, no, no. No, no, no. It's spectacular. In the early 16th century, as you know, there's a man called a Polish astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicus, and uh, he revolutionised the medieval worldview with his discovery that the sun does not go round the Earth, but the Earth and the planets go round the sun. The so-called Copernican revolution. He turned medieval astronomy on his head. And that's what John is doing here. And you see, as we come to worship, even as we did with a short trousered worship leader, <laughs> even as we come, part of what we're doing is we're coming to, re, despite the short trousers, we're coming to recalibrate the way we think. You know, you come in here on a Sunday morning somewhat frazzled. Do you know, if you've got any children under the age of 35, it's been, an, it's, it's been an effort to get here, right? Do you know, and you've probably had a couple of rows, only a couple in the car on the way here. And then you had an email from the bank manager on Thursday, do you know, and that's a bit of a hassle. And then you've got this tomorrow, and you've got that on Thursday, do you know, and things are just... And part of coming together with God's people and to worshiping together is to recalibrate things and to put life back in perspective because we do get knocked off it. And it's like getting the gyroscope back under. When I was an undergraduate uh, student, I learned to fly courtesy of the Royal Air Force. And there's a thing called a gyroscope. And when you do aerobatics, the gyroscope thing is to keep you flying straight and level even if you're in cloud do you see you've got this thing now if you do aerobatics it goes all over the place and you have quickly to let it settle so that in whatever you can fly what's called straight and level do you see and there's a sense in which when we come to worship God on a, whenever you do worship God on we come to as it were recalibrate things oh oh yes there is a god oh yes i am a christian yes of course i am that's right and he is in control and oh do you see it's the most wonderful thing i'm hurrying because of course i've left very little time um but the point the great point if you take nothing away else away from here the great point that John is making is that God is on the throne and therefore by definition God is in control. The great Baptist minister the Victorian era really the inventor of the so-called mega church a man called Charles Spurgeon in he had a large huge church in Elephant and Castle in London he said this beautifully what, we call the, what I'm talking about is the doctrine of providence or one of the effects of what I'm talking about is derived from it is the doctrine of providence. And he said this, we are not waifs and strays upon the open sea of fate. No, no. But we are steered by God's infinite wisdom towards our desired destination. Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. Do you like that? I love it. A soft pillow for anxious heads. God is in control. Then he, so we talked about the throne. Whoops, then it's your fault. Let's talk about the lion. Look in verse 5. Then one of the elders said, don't weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now again, in the ancient world, in this, the context and the culture we're talking about, the lion represented um, raw, unassailable power. There was nothing more powerful in their world. They didn't have nuclear weapons. Okay. So the, the thing that most captured and represented power was the lion. Awesome, irresistible, overwhelming, inescapable, unstoppable power. So any of you have any background, maybe you have a Jewish background, or if you have any background knowing the Old Testament, you'll know that, it calls Jesus the lion, the New Testament calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because in the Old Testament, the Jewish Messiah was predicted as a conqueror to come out of the tribe of Judah. One of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it says in um, verse 5, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Do you see that? If you got your Bible, verse 5, triumphed. <clears throat> I'd like you to highlight it on your digital device or circle it in your Bible with a pen. Triumphed. It's, it, it's a, a, a form, it, it means victory, triumph. And um, the original Greek word is uh, uh, spelled N-I-K-E. So somebody in a certain shoe company obviously got a bonus that week (laughs) because he picked the name. It's this, this this name triumph, Nike. And since John's argument is, since Christ has triumphed, so the argument runs, his people share his triumph. Verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So you say, well, what's this mean for me? One thing it most certainly means as a follower of Jesus is that you never need to be defeated by anything nor do you ever need to be determined by anything nor do you ever need to be defined by anything yes terrible things may have happened to you as a child for example unspeakable maybe even wicked things But through Christ's triumph, you could say, I will not be defeated by it. I will not be determined by it. It may be that you're suffering from cancer. But as a follower of Jesus, because of Jesus' triumph, you can say, I will not be defeated by it. I most certainly will not be defined by it. I'm not going to be a victim. Why? Because Jesus has triumphed. And as you know very well, the old African-American spiritual, we shall overcome, sung by men and women in the most appalling circumstances of suffering. But they had grasped this very fact from the book of Revelation. That Christ has triumphed and we share in that triumph. Yes, it may take years for it to be actualized, but Christ has triumphed and therefore and made us a kingdom and priests to serve our God very 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 quickly not only is there a throne not only is there a lion and this is one of the great paradoxes of the new testament there is also a lamb I mean, this, you know, you just, it's bizarre. Um, look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't we see the lion of Judah, the root of it, has triumphed? But then when he looks, what, what, he, what you don't see, what John doesn't see, is a lion gorging itself on its prey, you know, ripping the flesh after a newly um, butchered. Antelope. Blood dripping off its huge incisors. Now what do you see? (laughs) A lamb. A lamb. You know, go out into the, month ago, into the fields and the hills around here. You see these little fluffy white things. Gambling all over the, do you know? <laughs> do you think, what? A throne? A lion? And then are of these little things? <laughs> <laughs> Verse six, then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain And with your blood, you purchased men and women for God. You bought them. From every tribe and language and people and nation. It's utterly inclusive. It's breathtaking that this is for everybody. I don't care who you are sitting here hiding in the back row thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this Christianity, Lark. Well, I'm not sure I qualify, actually. Of course you do. It includes you. The net has been spread so wide that it even includes someone like me. (laughs) Do you see, that's a remarkable thing. And this reference to the slain lamb, you see, it's the central mystery of the Christian faith. The glorious Messiah, the Davidic King, the Lion of Judah, came into this world as a lamb. Which gives us insight into the way the kingdom of God works. Do you see, it's not a triumph or a victory in this world as we normally understand it. It's not the triumph of violence or the triumph of superior force or the triumph of better political organization or whatever you know a very very cunning social media campaign Mm-mm. Mm-mm. it speaks about blood and sacrifice see no Jew could read this no one with a Jewish background could possibly read this and miss the meaning I mean if you, had, if you came from that culture you just wouldn't a lamb always, when you talk about a little fluffy thing gambling over the hills, that's a very Western cultural ex, uh, understanding. For a Jew, a, lion, uh, a lamb simply meant a pool of blood because it had been slaughtered as a sacrifice. That's all it meant. Nothing else. So here, here is... The tri- God's triumph through a butchered lamb, of course, Jesus when he died for us on the cross on the first Good Friday. It's astonishing, isn't it? And I love the phrase, and with this I'll end: "Purchased from slavery." You notice in uh, verse six, a lamb that has been purchased. With your blood, you purchased men and women for God. There's a wonderful story of a young boy who, with his father, over several weekends, bought one of these kits to build a small yacht, sailing boat, this sort of size. And they built it over the weeks, in the winter and then come the spring they took it to their local park and started to sail it and he would have great delight seeing this thing go up and down in the wind it was his treasure then one day they went to the park and sailing it on the lake there and a gust of wind caught the thing and it went disappeared off shot off into the reeds and was totally inaccessible of course he was heartbroken he went home two or three weeks later He was walking through town, and there in a sort of second-hand shop, masquerading as an antique shop, in the window was his sailing boat. The masts were, a couple of masts were broken, the rigging was all tangled, the sails were all crumpled. So he went dashing into the shop and inquired, whether he could have it back in the shopkeeper said, No, you've got to pay for it, you want to buy it. So he there and then went home and started saving money. So till there came the point when he had saved enough money. And his father took him back to the shop and he bought it. And as the boy clutched it under his arm and walked out of the shop, his father and indeed the shop owner were astonished to hear him saying, you're twice mine, you're twice mine. I made you and now I've bought you. I've made you and now I've bought you. Which is precisely what the Bible is telling us here. God made us and then he sent his son, the Lamb of God to buy us, purchase us with his blood. What a God, eh? What an extraordinary thing this Christianity is. Okay, that was pretty painless. <laughs> Why didn't you stand up and we'll worship?